if artificial intelligence was able to like make my dinner, there's no, I, I'm not afraid of that. I think that's a great idea. Uh, well, I mean, but do you need artificial intelligence to make your dinner? Like, no, it's but if it's consistently making a great dinner every single night and I don't have to do it, what's the problem in that? Well, be, I mean, that's Jeff, just a simple home use. You just, I, my concern with you're not going to win this. No, no, but my, my concern with it is how it's used to replace our need to exist. That's my concern. Oh, because you're one of those. It's not, it's not just about your dinner. It's because suddenly it's about your dinner. And then it's Jeff, about yeah. doing tasks okay. around the house. Hold on, and hold on, everything hold on. else that comes with it. And suddenly you're just a head in a jar. Everything that we know about artificial intelligence and everything that you just said, which is completely uh, unbelievably false. Did, I, did <laughs> I tell you to do that? Everything that you just said and everything that I believe about AI is just based on what we hear in mainstream media. It's based on what we see on science fiction TV shows that we watch. We've got our opinions based on all that. Yeah, but if I read it on the internet, it's got to be true. It's got to be, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if we were able to actually hear from some of the people who are developing artificial intelligence and learn from them what it is and how it works and what we need to be worried about and what we need to plan for. Wouldn't that be ideal? That would be very ideal and I think it would vindicate me and my concerns about security. Well, there you go. So let's do it. We've got Martin Ford joining us on the show. He is a New York Times best-selling author in the artificial intelligence space, mm -hmm. and he's done what we all want to do. He's sat down and spoken with a whole lot of people in the artificial intelligence industry to find out, hey, what is going on? Right. Where is this going? What do we need to be afraid of? And what do we, what is the potential? for artificial intelligence. We're going to be speaking with Martin Ford this evening, and we're going to be learning all about AI. Stick around. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Our live recordings are trusted only to solid-state drives by Kingston Technology. Revive your computer with improved performance and reliability over traditional hard drives with Kingston SSDs. Category 5 TV streams live with Telestream Wirecast and Nimble Streamer. Tune in every week on Roku, Kodi, Plex, and other HLS video players. For local showtimes, visit Category5.tv. Category5.tv is a member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here, cat5.tv slash tpn. And the International Association of Internet Broadcasters, cat5.tv slash iaib. Welcome to the show. This is Category 5 Technology TV. It's episode number 592. And Jeff is here. Oh, I'm yeah. here. Sasha's around. So she's going to be joining us for the news in just a couple of moments' time. Uh, just quickly off the top, I want to say thank you so much to everyone who's been supporting us on Patreon. Uh, this is, you know, a new year for us at Category 5 TV. And as a volunteer organization, your patronage helps to, uh, to make Category 5 possible. And we love bringing free, family-friendly uh, tech broadcasting to the the world and we appreciate you coming along with us and supporting us at the same time. Um, we're going to jump right into our interview tonight. Um, Jeff and I have had a lot of discussions on the air about artificial intelligence and opinions thereof, but the fact is artificial intelligence is no longer a thing of science fiction, but we tend to get our information from mainstream media. Mm -hmm. 
And so we're hearing about hype and speculation and often fear-mongering from people who haven't themselves been contributors to the technology. Our guest this week wants to change that with his new book, Architects of Intelligence, where he's recorded in-depth interviews with the very people shaping the future of AI. He's the New York Times best-selling author of Rise of the Robots. Please help me welcome futurist Martin Ford. Martin, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Martin, why another book about AI? Well, what I really wanted to do with this book is get inside the minds of the people that are really building this technology, the people that really on, you know, in the whole world know the most about artificial intelligence. They're literally, in many cases, the people that have uh, you know, been responsible for some of the breakthroughs that have really brought us to this point where everyone is talking about AI because it's become so disruptive. So I think that's the best way to kind of cut through, as you said, the speculation mm -hmm. and the hype and really find out what's really going on. And that, that's sort of my purpose um, with this book. Very good. And I, I love the way it reads. Um, it is written very much as an interview. So, you know, if you're daunted by a big, thick book, um, Architects of Intelligence from Martin Ford is, uh, it's written like an interview and you're able to kind of get into the minds of those who are involved in the development of AI. Uh, Martin, how will AI evolve and what major innovations are on the horizon? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, no one really knows the answer to that. And that's one of the main takeaways from the book is that I talked to 23 of the people in the world that know the most about this, and yet they really don't agree on a lot of this stuff. You know, they have different opinions, different ideas. So one of the main takeaways is that it's going to be unpredictable. I mean, everyone agrees that it's going to be very disruptive, that it's going to be a game changer for the economy, for society, but we don't really know exactly what innovations are going to occur first. We don't know, for example, what industries are going to be transformed first. Um, we don't know exactly what the breakthroughs are going to be. Um, having said that, the primary technology that's really driving things right now is what's called deep learning or deep neural networks, mm -hmm. which is uh, basically building software in a way that kind of roughly emulates the way your brain works, you know, in terms of the way the neurons are connected. Um, and that's the, the technology that's really just been transformative over maybe the last six, seven years. We've seen incredible breakthroughs. We've got uh, systems that, are, of course, are used in self-driving cars now. They're getting right. pretty close to, to really working. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, systems used in medicine that can look at a medical image and actually be better than a human doctor in some cases at determining is there cancer in that, that image. Mm. Um, we've got systems that are translating languages, um, even in real time. So it's just stuff that really just a few years ago with science fiction is, is now happening. Um, so we can expect that over the next years and decades, that technology is going to get a lot better. It's going to evolve. Um, become much more powerful, and that's going to continue to drive the disruption. Um, and then further out, there are some real breakthroughs um, on the road toward what we would call true human-level intelligence, which is really kind of the holy grail of this whole field, you know, building a machine that can think at the level of a human being. But that's kind of a long path, and there are a lot of breakthroughs that need to occur before we get there. Right. And a lot of my discussions in this book are, are about what exactly are those breakthroughs, when might they occur, uh, what does that path look like and how long will it take us to to get the human level AI? That's one of the most fascinating questions, you know, um, mm -hmm. that, that's really central to this field. Martin, we hear a lot of terms AI and now deep learning. What, what's the actual relationship between deep learning and AI? 
Well, AI is the broadest term. Artificial intelligence really means essentially building technology, building machines or algorithms that in some sense think or, or take on cognitive capability that can solve problems uh, and learn in the same way that, that people can. Uh, hmm. One facet of that, one, one area of that is machine learning, which is specifically building algorithms that can look at data and can learn. And right now, those terms are used kind of interchangeably. But what we're seeing right now is really machine learning. It's algorithms that look at sometimes massive amounts of data mm -hmm. and can learn to do amazing things from that. You know, based, you know, for example, looking at a medical image and determining is there cancer there or not. Um, and that is really the disruptive technology. But there, you know, in the future, it will become even broader and will incorporate things like genuine reasoning and so forth. But, but right now, it's primarily okay. a focus on machine learning. Yeah, and that, that makes me think, like, is, are we going to see machine learning and deep learning continue to dominate? Or are we going to have other approaches that are coming to the forefront? Right. So before the current boom in, in deep learning, if you go back, you know, more than 10 years, 15 years, there were other areas of AI that were much more prominent that we really focused on. And this involved, for example, what was called symbolic reasoning, the ability of mm -hmm. computers to make decisions and, and to, to reason in human-like ways. This is where the main thrust was, although people didn't have a huge amount of success with that. There was also expert systems, which are the kind of systems, for example, that do step-by-step -step thinking and analysis. That's the kind of system you would basically find in a jet airplane, which can fly itself, right? There was once a time when all of this stuff that we now consider to be kind of routine was was considered to be artificial intelligence. Um, the current boom is in machine learning and teach in algorithms that can learn. But many people think that in the future, we'll need to bring back some of those earlier ideas into the picture in order to build more, more generalized, powerful intelligence. Um, oh, okay. And that's one of the, the main ideas in the book. There's one camp of people, one group of people that believe strongly that deep learning is not going to be enough to take us forward to the next level, that we're going to have to bring back some of these more traditional ideas. Right. But then there are a bunch of people that I talk to that are really deep learning enthusiasts. They, they really believe in this technology. And that includes people like, for example, Jeffrey Hinton, who is very famous within the AI community for having been probably the single guy that's most responsible for bringing forth this deep learning revolution. He really invented a lot of the technology there. Um, and they believe that, that deep learning will get better. There will be, you know, it become more general. It will have new capabilities. There will be breakthroughs that will occur within the context of deep learning or neural networks, and that will take us forward. So it's really wow. interesting to talk to these different people about their views of the technology um, and how it might progress. But again, one of the main takeaways is that they really don't agree. There's something of a debate between <laughs> these two camps. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the, I think, most interesting aspects of it. Cool. And it's very much stepping stones, I think, and we're, we're yeah. at that point where it's leaps and bounds. Jeff, I'm thinking about deep learning, and, and as you're mentioning, Martin, uh, how uh, this technology is able to think along the, the same kind of way of a human in a way. So, I mean, I, I have to ask the question that all of us Trekkies are, are thinking, I'm sure, at this <laughs> moment. I mean, w what does it look like as far as the path toward human-level artificial general intelligence? Uh, like, how far off are we really from Lieutenant Data being able to uh, operate our business? Right. Right. Um, 
I mean, that's that's the biggest question in artificial intelligence. And, and, and it goes back right to the beginning when Alan Turing in 1950 wrote a famous paper and he asked, can a machine think? And that's where he invented the Turing test, right? Which mm. many people has, have heard of as, as kind of the test for true intelligence. If a machine can carry out a conversation like, like a person, then uh, we consider it to be intelligent. That's one, one test. Um, and that goes all the way back to right to the beginning. And yet we still don't really know the answer to the question of how how far off it is. And it's it's a big part of the book. I talked to everyone about that, but the opinions really vary. Uh, I talked to Ray Kurzweil, who's a very famous futurist that many people have heard of. Um, he's the guy that is most associated with the idea of the singularity. Um, he thinks it's only 10 years off. 2029 wow. is wow. the year he thinks that okay. uh, we will have human level artificial intelligence. And that's a very, very aggressive prediction mm. i personally think that's way too you know optimistic <laughs> yeah like optimistic. is that an aggressive prediction to try uh, to push the industry or is this a realistic approximation that's his view i mean and he's, okay. he's at google working on these technologies right he's now ah. he, before he was a guy that kind of wrote books and talked about this a lot um and an inventor but now he actually for the last few years has worked at google and he's actually working on this so <laughs> and in the interview i did with him it's clear that he knows what he's talking about in terms of the details of you know the technology he's working on so you have to give that some some credence right <laughs> uh but then other people i talked to and one example would be rodney brooks who is who is the founder of uh, irobot corporation he's one of the most famous robotics experts in the world he thinks it could be 180 years in the future so that's a pretty good range right oh wow is it 10 years in the future or 180 years in the future i mean 180 years you're really getting into the the the, the star trek era right that, mm -hmm. that's i think when star trek was actually set right a couple hundred years in the future so i mean that's the range of opinion i i did i asked everyone about this i actually took an average and the average oh. turned out to be about 80 years, so okay. just at the end of this century. So I think most of us would be quite lucky to still be alive if it's really mm -hmm. 80 years from now. Um, <laughs> so that's what we're talking about. It's very unpredictable. Um, 80 years is about the average, but there certainly are a number of people that are much more aggressive, not just Ray, but others yeah. think it might be 20 to 50 years, somewhere in that time frame. Okay. But others think it's hundreds of years, years away. So. That really gives you a good sense of just how hard this problem is and how sure. little we know about it, how little we know about what it is really going to take to get to the point where we can build uh, human-level intelligence and, mm -hmm. and how fast those breakthroughs can occur. So I would expect, it's a very open question. Yeah, and I would expect that that is the key word. It's breakthrough because yeah. at one point, that breakthrough is going to happen. That's just all of a sudden going to accelerate things. Um, you can read all about the discussion that we're having, uh, basically learn about these um, discussions that Martin has had with these uh, professionals in the AI industry by reading Architects of Intelligence. Um, Jeff, do you mind throwing to a commercial break? We've just got to take a really quick, uh, quick break here. Yeah, yeah. So when we come back... We're going to be speaking with Martin Ford about the dangers associated with AI, so you're going to want to stick around. Whether you shop on ThinkGeek, GearBest, B&H Photo Video, eBay, or Amazon, or even if you want a free trial of Audible, 
you'll find the best deals and support the shows we produce by simply visiting the shopping sites you already frequent by using the links on our website. Visit Category5.tv slash partners for the full and ever-growing list and help us create more free content like this show. Thank you for shopping with our partners and thank you for watching. And we're back. We are talking to Martin Ford about his, uh, he's best-selling author, and we're talking to him about his book on artificial intelligence called Architects of Intelligence. Now, prior to the break, we had a couple of great questions just kind of going through what is artificial intelligence, deep learning, how are they connected, stuff like that. But I want to get to the other side of it because we've had conversations on the show, and as much as I love the advancement in tech, mm -hmm. I'm very, personally, I am very worried about the the security risks that come with this. And part of the conversation usually goes, Jeff, we got to stay away from conspiracy theories. we got to be right. careful of that because a lot of the mass media is driving toward fear-mongering in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess the question I want to know, and, and in coming up mm -hmm. to this interview, I think it's the number one question I've wanted to ask, is what are the risks associated with AI, and particularly in the areas of security, privacy, bias, and potential weaponization? Sounds like a great question for Martin, our guest, Martin Ford. Right. Um, so this is, this is a very important question, and there definitely are some legitimate concerns there. Um, and this is, you know, was, again, a really important topic in the book. So, so there's lots of material there on this. I will just, in the beginning, I want to just make the point that there are really two categories of these risks or dangers. And the first one is, is what you just mentioned, the things that we're going to face for sure, the things that we are already beginning to face in artificial intelligence. So these are very, very legitimate fairly immediate concerns that we really need to be worried about. And then there's a second category of dangers that we might call science fiction still at this point, very right. more speculative, futuristic things that uh, many people consider to be, you know, potentially ex existential, but that's a separate category. So what I'll, I'll let me focus first on, on the, the immediate things, the things that we really legitimately have to worry about. Um, and certainly one of those is security. The reality is that when we have an autonomous system, something that is controlled completely by artificial intelligence, and there are no people in the loop, then by it's natural to assume that that system is going to be more susceptible to hacking or to cyber attack. Sure. Right. Um, someone else could contr take control of that system or, or cause it to stop working. Um, just to give one example, imagine that we had autonomous trucks driving around delivering all our food to stores, to grocery stores, and someone hacked into that and brought all those trucks to a stop. I mean, that's a pretty big problem, right? And you can right. imagine many, many things like that. So the whole issue of security with these systems is, is a huge issue, and there's lots of um, effort being put into that. Um, and it's going to be a huge challenge. It may be the single most important challenge with, with regard to artificial intelligence and automation more generally is the security issue, you know, the fact that we have to make sure that these systems, you know, are, are safe from intrusion, mm -hmm. whether it's from criminals or, or other countries or, or whatever. And Martin, if uh, I so may ask, well, along that vein, whose responsibility is that? Are there regulations to, uh, to demand companies that are manufacturing artificial intelligence to, uh, to use a security by design principle? 
Yeah, I think that there's going to be a, a need to be kind of an interaction between government and between industry there. I, uh, certainly there, there's a place for regulation. Um, I don't think that government can do it all by itself. I mean, what mm -hmm. the reality is that with many of these issues, we, you know, there's a place for regulation. It's also true that the government isn't isn't by itself competent, right? The people that work in the government don't have the knowledge to do this. I mean, one basic right. reality is that people that work for the government make a lot less money than people in the private sector. So the very best people don't always work in the government, right? So right. Mm -hmm. in terms of technical expertise, um, it's not always there. So it's going to require cooperation between the companies that are doing this and the government. Um, and hopefully there can be some reasonable standards there, you know, and, and, and the companies will understand that there probably does need to be regulation to ensure that that these systems are safe and they will work together with the government to make that happen in, in an appropriate way. Okay. Now, I mean, along that vein of thinking, you also have the impact of AI as it relates to industries. And so with that challenge you uh, write about in Rise of Robots is the potential impact on the job market and the economy. Do you think that all of this could cause a new kind of industrial revolution and completely transform the job market? Yeah, I mean, that's my view. And as you say, that was the topic of my book, Rise of the Robots. And I also, I talk a lot about that with everyone in, in Architects of Intelligence as well. Um, there is something of a debate about that. Uh, you will find for sure economists that will tell you that this is all overblown, that there's nothing to worry about. And largely the reason they'll tell you there's nothing to worry about is that in the past, this issue has come up many times. People have worried about technological unemployment for a long time, mm -hmm. um, but hasn't really happened yet, right? So uh, I personally believe that this time is different because now we've got artificial intelligence. We've got machines that are in a limited sense beginning to think, and that means that they are competing, you might say, with our core competence, right? The thing that really makes us unique as human beings yeah. is our ability to think, to learn, to adapt, to innovate. And and machines are beginning to compete directly with this capability. And that's going to have uh, a different impact in the future. That's my view. Um, most of the people, everyone that I talk to really in Architects of Intelligence believes that there is going to be a disruptive impact. Not everyone agrees there will be outright unemployment, but I mean, I think most people in the technology community believe in the potential for this big disruption. Um, mm. What we see so far, of course, is not unemployment. We've got a very low unemployment rate in the United States, but we do see, for example, stagnant wages, right, among most right. of the workforce. You know, they, they, they literally haven't gotten a, a raise really in decades, not in not after in adjusting for inflation. So I think technology is already having a big impact in terms of pushing down wages for average people and, and making mm -hmm. things much more unequal so that all the gains from advancing technology are now going to the people at the top, right? Executives and investors and people like that are doing well, but average people are not. So I, I think this is already having a big impact. And I, I personally believe that over the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see an even bigger impact and there is a real potential for, for unemployment. And that's an issue that is, you know, potentially huge for society, for the fabric of society, for stability of society, for political stability and so forth, not just in the U.S., but in countries across the world. Right. Um, and it also has big economic implications because in order to have a thriving economy, people have to have money to spend, right? You, you know, you need people to come buy what's being produced. Mm -hmm. Businesses need customers, and if people don't have jobs or if their incomes are very low, if things are so unequal that, that a few people are really capturing all the income, then you can't really have a, 
a vibrant economy, and I think that's going to be a real challenge for us. So that is my view, although, again, there is a big debate over it. Okay. Now, I mean, with that thought, I mean, you've, you've talked about how big business is going to be gaining from that, and I know I read an article earlier this week about, a, a, I think it was a restaurant in Japan or China that had laid off all of its staff and got oh, robots right. in and then fired them all essentially because they weren't working out. So with that kind of back and forth hustle of trying to get a sense of how to use AI, who really is going to be the big benefactor and who are going to be the big losers? Is it kind of the you know big man versus little man or is it going to create a whole new um, realm of winners and losers, so to speak? Well, it's going to, I mean, technology is going to have a gradual impact, right? It's not going to be a restaurant bringing in all robots overnight or something. Um, it's going to be a restaurant gradually using more robots and as a result of that, not needing quite as many people and maybe right. letting some people go and maybe not hiring so many people in the future, right? And you're going to right. see that in restaurants, you're going to see that in Amazon warehouses, and you're going to see it especially with white-collar jobs across the board. So this mm -hmm. one really okay. important thing to understand is that this is not just blue-collar workers, and it's certainly not just physical robots that are actually manipulating the world, right? It, it, it's A lot of this is just about software, and it's going to be a big impact on knowledge workers, the people that sit in front of a computer and do relatively routine things, you know, cranking out the same report again and again or doing the same kind of quantitative analysis or manipulating data in some way, a lot of that is going to be susceptible to automation. And that's not, you know, low-skilled people, right? That's people that have college degrees. Right. Um, so th there's a big impact coming there. Now, in general, the losers are going to be people that do routine, repetitive, predictable things. And again, right. that doesn't necessarily mean unskilled people or people that don't have education. It's about the nature of the work. It might be the McDonald's worker flipping hamburgers, or it might be the college graduate who, who just does the same report every week, right? Those people mm -hmm. could both be impacted. The people that are going to be the winners and, and will be relatively safe from this and maybe in a position to benefit from it are going to be the people that can work with the technology in a way that really adds value. And that will be people who are very creative, that generate new ideas. It will be people that um, have interpersonal skills and networks and can build sophisticated relationships with other people, um, you know, and, 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 and things like that. And of course, it will also be people that own lots of capital, right? Because essentially what's happening here, the big picture is that capital which includes technology and machines and algorithms is becoming more capable and displacing labor, right? So the people that own capital, which is a relatively few people, right? Because, you know, capital ownership is very concentrated. Right. Uh, those people are going to do better and better, right? Because they own the machines. Basically, they own the robots, right. you might okay. say. Um, whereas the people that rely on their labor, if they don't have the specific skills to really work with these technologies and and benefit from these technologies, those people are going to be losers. So um, that's the story that we're going to see in the future, I think. And it basically is saying that things are going to become even more unequal than they are now. Right. Now, it's interesting that you talk about the people who have the capital are really kind of the ones that are going to benefit because, you know, there have been some who have that capital, 
that have spoken against it. And I mean, do right. we have to worry about the fears that have been raised by people like Elon Musk, uh, Stephen Hawking, and others that someday AI could pose a genuine existential threat to humanity? Right. So that's the second category of danger that I was talking about, right? There's something that still right now is really science fiction. And the concern there is that someday, first of all, we'll build a machine that has true human level intelligence, right? right. Which again, as I said before, you know, based on, on the people I talked to, could be 10 years away or could be 200 years away, right? So, um, and probably is, is something like 80 years at least away. So, you know, it's pretty far in the future. But if we reach that point, most people believe that, of course, things are not going to stop at that point, that the machine is going to get even smarter. Um, that's right. just a natural expectation. In part, it might happen because the machine then decides to use its its superior internet intellect to to make even smarter versions of itself right uh so pretty soon you have what's called super intelligence you have something that is maybe much smarter than any human being something dramatically smarter some people think it could be a thousand times smarter than we are or something like that so we might be like you know a mouse or or, or an insect relative to the intellect of this machine right so at that point the question then becomes how do we control it how do we make sure that, that it still works with our best interests in mind, right? Yeah. And this is what's called the control problem. Um, and there are serious people really, really worried about this working on this. The most famous of the people working on it is a guy named Nick Bostrom, who I also interviewed in a book. And he wrote a, very, a pretty famous book that was a bestseller called Superintelligence. And... Uh, so I talked to him in the book, and he's concerned about this. He thinks it's a real, genuine issue that it potentially could be an existential threat. Um, but obviously, that's very speculative. My own view on this is that it's good that some smart people, like Nick Bostrom and a few other think tanks, um, Elon Musk set up a, a think tank called OpenAI, which is working on this problem, and I think that's great. There are mm -hmm. some really, really smart people that are doing good work on this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of an appropriate allocation of resources to this problem, okay? Because it is very speculative. It does clearly lie far in the future. I don't think we should have this massive concern over this. I don't think we should have the government focused on this, spending big, you know, government funds or public funds on this. I don't think we want Donald Trump tweeting about this. Right. Um, I think it's good where it is with a few smart people working on it. Uh, and I think that when you get rhetoric like you've seen from Elon Musk, where he's talking about, you know, summoning the demon and it's a bigger <laughs> threat than nuclear weapons or North Korea and all this stuff, there's a risk that we we become too engrossed in that and we distract attention from uh, the things that we really need to be concerned about in the immediate future. And this is the issue you raised earlier, security, also the potential impact on privacy, uh, the potential for bias. These are real issues that, that are already concerned. And also, <laughs> as I've been talking about, the potential impact on the job market and, and on inequality. These are things that are coming at us within the next few years, certainly within the next 10, 20 years, uh, probably a lot sooner than that. So that's where most of our immediate attention should be. These other fears about an existential threat are, are legitimate. I wouldn't dismiss them and say it's stupid or silly. You shouldn't worry about it. But I think it's okay that a few smart people are, are worried about this and working on it for right now.
Right. Okay. It, so, it sounds to me, through the course of this conversation, uh, and Martin, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the people who are responsible for developing the artificial intelligence are aware of these potential problems. And, and, there, and admittedly, there are some potential issues with AI that sure. are frightening, and, and they know about those, and they implement those into the development process. Does that, yes. Is that fair to say? And, and, and that's fair to say. And again, speaking in terms of the two general categories I laid out, right? Everyone that I talk to in the book is aware of the immediate concerns, the things like privacy and, and security okay. and, and bias and so forth. And, and they are actively working on these things. Um, they have different views about the, the further out, more futuristic existential threats. Some of them are quite dismissive of that. They really think that's not something we should worry about. Others do take that concern seriously. Good. Um, but I think everyone agrees that it's okay if a few smart people work on it. Um, right. Very good. So, yes, I mean, I, you know, we can have a reasonable level of, a co of confidence that the people working on these technologies care about it, right? That they, they yep. certainly know about these dangers. And, um, you know, one danger we haven't talked so much about is, is weaponization, the idea that, that artificial intelligence could be used in in autonomous weapons, right? Sure. That's, that's not the same as the thing Elon Musk is worried about. That means, you know, drones that might autonomously kill somebody. Yeah. Um, right. That's something that we have to worry about in the relatively near future. And, and there are many people in the artificial intelligence community that are very, very concerned about this. For example, there are over a thousand researchers that have signed a petition, you know, calling for a ban on these kinds of technologies um, because it could be, you know, very dangerous and disruptive. Interesting. Now, we've kind of gone from the beginning of what is it and how does it relate to yeah. deep learning. We've gone to the... We got into the dark side of AI. Yeah. Can we just bring it back a little bit? Yes. Okay. So Phew. for one final question, <laughs> between all of your interviews, all of the research you've done, you've done, what are you personally most excited about when it comes to the evolution of AI? I'm excited about the potential that the technology has to transform the world for the better. I mean, the, one of the best interviews in my book that I recommend everyone read is with Demis Hassabas, who is the CEO of DeepMind, right? This is maybe the most famous AI company in the world. It's the company that built the AlphaGo system that a lot of people heard about it. It won at the game of Go. You can, you can, there's actually a documentary called AlphaGo on Netflix that you can watch about this. It's, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, what Demis says, he, he's very famous for this quote, is that he wants to solve the problem of artificial intelligence, and then he wants to use that to solve everything else. And, and that's really <laughs> interesting. The of what we're talking about here. Right. So AI is going to become the most important tool in our toolbox. It's going to result in incredible breakthroughs in medicine and science. It can be used to address problems like climate change. It can be used to solve the problem of new clean energy sources, right? right? Um, it, maybe even, you know, global poverty. These are huge problems that humanity faces. AI is going to be the most important tool we have to solve these problems. Because if you think about it, everything that we have in our world today, everything that makes your life better than someone that lived a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago is because of human ingenuity, right? Right. And I think I think we've lost Martin there just for a moment. Martin, I'm going to let I'm going to let that reconnect for your final thought. Oh, sorry, we we lost you there, Martin. Martin, can we just back up just about uh, ten seconds, please? Sorry. Okay. 
So artificial intelligence is going to be the most important tool in our toolbox. It is going to enable us to create things in the future that today we can't even imagine. Uh, you know, and, and that's the, the real promise of this technology. That's what gets me excited. And that's the reason that I talk about the challenges and the downsides of this technology, and in particular why I talk about the potential for inequality and unemployment and so forth, because if we don't talk honestly about those problems and, and try to create solutions to those problems and try to create a way for this to evolve in a way that's inclusive, right, that, that, that benefits everyone, then there's going to be a backlash, right? People mm -hmm. are going to object. They're going to, you know, people that are losing their livelihoods, sure. that are falling behind, they're going to be against this technology. And that's a bad thing because it's an incredible um, benefit for humanity. We don't want that. We want to find a way to adapt to this so that we can leverage this technology on behalf of everyone. And that's really my primary message in really everything that I do and in, and in terms of all the writing that I've done in this area. We've been speaking with New York Times bestselling author Martin Ford, and he is the uh, author of Architects of Intelligence, brand new, just came out, and it's available everywhere right now. You can also support us if you'd like. Use the links that we've posted below, and that will allow you to purchase through Amazon as well. Uh, Martin, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We've got to take a really quick break. When we come back, we've got Sasha Rickman going to be joining us, taking over for this guy yeah. in the news. Don't go anywhere. For a limited time, get your hands on limited edition shirts from the Category 5 TV network. These high-quality shirts are manufactured by Teespring, a fundraising website, and your purchase will help support the shows we produce. Get yours today and send us your pictures to be featured on the corresponding show. Visit cat5.tv shirts to support us and get your official network shirt today. cat5.tv shirts. This is the Category5.tv Newsroom, covering the week's top tech stories with a slight Linux bias. I'm Sasha Rickman, and here are the top stories we're following this week. GDPR is already making, making an example of Google. They've been fined 50 million euros over ads. French data regulator CNIL said it had levied the record fine for lack of transparency, inadequate information, and lack of valid consent regarding ads personalization. The regulator said it judged that people were not sufficiently informed about how Google collected data to personalize advertising. The first complaint under the EU's new General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, was filed against Google on May 25th of last year, the very day the legislation took effect. The two groups filing the claim said that Google did not have a valid legal basis to process user data for ads personalization as mandated by the GDPR. Although Google's European headquarters is in Ireland, it was decided among the authorities that the case would be handled by the French data regulator since the Irish watchdog did not have a decision-making power over its Android operating system and its services. In a statement, Google said it was studying the decision to determine its next step. Well then. So. So. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm. The thing is, I love Google. Like I switched away from Facebook. Oh sure. Right, and then yeah. I I put all my love in Google, and now 
Google's doing some weird. Well, things, not necessarily right? suddenly doing, but no. but wouldn't it be difficult to be as big as Google yeah. and then have something like GDPR suddenly come into effect mm-hmm. and looking at your massive amounts of code right. and the incredible infrastructure that they have and oh my goodness so getting called out on that one thing and it's a pretty obvious thing too it's completely obvious mm-hmm. like if i search something right it pops up in all my google ads is that yeah. that's the thing right mm-hmm. like i search like say i search like winter camping sleeping bags every oh, now se- everyone on your network is getting that ad right exactly like 100 percent. yeah it's tough um but um we knew that gdpr would be making an example of some big companies and and Mm -hmm. google seems to be uh, yay congratulations you're number one well that's the thing they're the biggest company (laughs) so they're the one that's going to be targeted but i mean they're not the only ones doing this by any means right they're just the biggest ones yeah the first to get made an example of right but is it really being made an example of because it's petty change to google right right yeah and it's and we knew it was happening all along so Mm -hmm. it's not like they're shining a light onto something that has worried us gdpr2 is a a difficult thing because it's a european regulation or Mm -hmm. law and and so me like for example like our website category5.tv we are um, based in the U.S., technically, that's where our hosting is, and, right. and so we have a lot of viewers in Europe, and and so our website, if I was collecting any information, has to be transparent about that. Right. And and so if I wasn't transparent about that, I don't collect any information. But we do use ads on the website. So do the the advertisers that post on our website? They're third parties. Right. They're not Google. They used to be Google. I wish it was Google because they pay a little better. <laughs> but, um, but you know. Uh, what do they? Yeah. Who's responsible for that? Yeah. It makes it really, really tough for, for some businesses, for sure. It's tricky. But it'll all come out kind of in the end as far as these regulations and legislations, they're all new, right? So they'll develop and flesh out. Yeah. And, and they're pushing and driving toward protecting our privacy and putting our our data back into our hands so that i have to say yes mm-hmm. i opt into that to be able to share that data and to be able to store that data right so it, it's a good thing yeah it's a very good thing it's good that the default is security as opposed to where the default used to be right just you know a free-for-all yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah. this is good we'll see what comes of it Exactly. A massive list of compromised accounts has been leaked to the tune of 773 million accounts. And the Have I Been Owned service has got their hands on it. Have I Been Owned, the breach notification service that serves as a bellwether for the security of login credentials, has just gotten its hands on its biggest data haul ever. A list that includes almost 773 million unique email addresses and 21 million unique passwords that were used to log into third-party sites. According to the service's founder, Troy Hunt, the monster list is a compilation of many smaller lists taken from past breaches, and it has been in wide circulation over the past couple weeks. It was also posted to the mega file sharing site. 
At least one of the included breaches dated back to 2015. Dubbed collection number one, the aggregated data was likely scraped together to serve as a master list that hackers could use in credential stuffing attacks. These attacks use automated scripts to inject credentials from one breached website into a different website in the hopes that the holders reuse the same passwords. The list contained 12,000 separate files that take up then up to more than 87 gigabytes of disk space has 2.69 billion rows, many of which contain duplicate entries that Hunt had to clean up. About 663 million of the addresses have been listed in previous Have I Been Owned notifications, meaning 140 million of the addresses have never been seen by the service before. Hunt said that some of his own credentials were included in Wednesday's notification, although none were currently in use. Have I Been Owned has now begun the task of emailing more than 768,000 individuals who signed up for notifications and nearly 40,000 people who monitor domains. Anyone who hasn't signed up can still check the status of an email address at haveibeenowned.com. What I take from that story, there's a couple of interesting points. Now, the creator of Have I Been Owned found his own credentials on there. Right. So... That tells me a couple of things. First, he is obviously very security conscious and, and protects his passwords and is right. careful who Super he gives information and, to. Yeah. yeah. And yet his, his accounts were compromised. So if someone like him, the very creator of Have I Been Owned, is able to have their data compromised, it means it's not always the user's fault Right. That the data is compromised. So think about that for a second. So, um, so what we need to realize is that his second point in the story, mm-hmm. so my second point based on the story, is he said, well, but none of those credentials were still active. So what does that mean? Okay, well, he is security-minded. Right. His data was compromised, but it's okay because it's no longer current. So we know that he's been rotating passwords. He's been changing accounts. He's been using various email accounts for different things. Uh, And so even in a data leak like that, Mm -hmm. he is not compromised because the information that was compromised is no longer valid because he took steps to protect his own accounts super um, forward thinking of him. Sure. And something that I should be doing. I should just take a whole day of changing my passwords. And that's a tough thing to do. And and not only changing passwords, but looking... Uh, one of the nice things about having a password manager mm-hmm. is that it reminds you of all the sites that you did sign up for. Right. right? Because sometimes I'll, I forget, I'll get a notification from Have I Been Owned that um, Adobe's website was compromised. I used Adobe's website? <laughs> when? What? Yeah. Yahoo was compromised. When did I have a Yahoo account? I don't remember. Oh, Flickr. Or, you know, like there's connections that I may not make. And right. so having that password manager is not only great for maintaining a password list and being able to change passwords and keep them very, very strong, but it also helps me to be accountable to the accounts that I've created so that I can look at the list and say, oh, I signed up for an Adobe account. I haven't ever logged into that, so let's shut it down. Right. Let's at least change the credentials to something stupid because I'm never going to use it. So if they ever get hacked, I don't want the credentials to be legit. 
it makes sense. We can take those kinds of um, kinds of steps. So take that story and kind of learn from um, you know the this the kind of underlying theme of it, which is. Um, rotate your passwords mm -hmm. and know that it's not going to be your fault necessarily if a data breach occurs. So it, it's not, it, some people say, oh, I'm, I'm never going to fall for a phishing scam. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not concerned. Get concerned. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the creator of Have I Been Owned didn't fall for a phishing scam and quite probably didn't fall for them, yet his data was compromised. So keep that in the back of your mind. Google Hangouts begins winding down this year, but service will live on in chat and meet spinoffs. In March 2017, Google announced that Hangouts would split into meet and chat apps, kicking off what has been a long, slow road to shut down the original version of the platform. Almost two years later, we now have an official timetable for the winding down of the well-used service as Google attempts to wrestle a bigger share of the team communications market away from competitors like Slack. The timeline begins with the transition of G Suite users from classic Hangouts to Chat and Meet this year, followed by a consumer transition which will likely begin in 2020. The plan begins on April 16th when Google will start pushing G Suite administrators and users toward adopting the Meet and Chat platforms with an emphasis on Chat, the Slack-like messaging platform. Mainly, these are admin-facing changes. Beginning on that date, administrators will be able to disable Classic Hangouts user interfaces at the, at the time of their choosing and will also be able to control both Classic Hangouts and chat or meet in their respective settings. Google Vault customers will have to make a few decisions about mail retention rules between March 16th and April 16th. Next, features from Classic Hangouts will come to chat. Over the summer, Google plans to add features like integration with Gmail, chatting with external users, improved video calling, and the ability to make calls with Google Voice. Then in October, Google will start retiring Classic Hangouts for G Suite's customers. All remaining users will be transitioned to chat. As it stands now, chat and classic hangouts are fairly interoperable, but group conversations are separate between the two products. The two will continue to be interoperable until October. As for protecting any data you might have in classic hangouts, it seems the transition will carry along your past message histories into chat, but that is yet to be confirmed. Additionally, there's also Google Takeout if you want more peace of mind. Other than that, it all seems it seems all that's left to say is rest in peace Google Hangouts. You served us well. We've, They're evolving. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like they are already offering us replacements. We've done yeah. Google Hangouts even on the show, right? Mm -hmm. so, and it's always been evolving. And it's, it, yeah. The platform has been great. But I, I think with the evolution of the platform, it makes it difficult to keep up. As, right. You know, I'm not someone who uses it every day. No. Some people do. And so, you know, you're on top of the latest technology that they're offering. But I mean, it has to evolve. I Yeah, I feel slightly uncomfortable the fact that they give you two options to transition to right like they have the I think it's more splitting up the functionality between two different products yeah. so that it's a little more targeted to each need so if I got rid of Google Hangouts would I need to have both chat and me right like do I need to have both 
I, we shall see. I guess, right? <laughs> or do I have to choose one or the other? I guess not. I wouldn't have to choose one or the other. It just seems, I don't know. I, I think I would put it akin as to like messenger chat versus Skype, you know, and, and right. kind of keeping those two platforms separate. So you've got the chat and you've got the mm-hmm. like visual meetings and calls and things like that. Right. And, uh, and calls in general. I do like Google's. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be into this. We'll see. We'll see. Let us know if it impacts you. <laughs> Microsoft has begun beta testing Windows 10 patches with an with actual beta testers. Microsoft releases C and D updates to people who cl- click check for updates in Windows updates. Those people become unwitting beta testers. January 2019 C update has a rare distinction. Microsoft tested it with Windows insiders first. C and D updates are released in the third and fourth weeks of most months. They include non-security fixes and are only installed for people who click the check for updates button in Windows Update. These people essentially beta test the updates before the fixes form part of next month's stable Patch Tuesday updates. Those Patch Tuesday updates are named B updates as Patch Tuesdays is in the second week of each month. These C and D updates have caused problems before. For example, a D update recently caused blue screens on Microsoft's own Surface Book 2 hardware. Only people who clicked the Check for Updates button would have installed it and encountered the problem. Microsoft calls these people seekers and thinks that they're looking for more updates, but we think most people clicking that button have no clue they're opting into unstable updates. There's finally some good news though. So, this month's C update, KB4476976, has actually gone through testing in the Windows Insider release preview ring earlier this month. This is still a C update, and it's still only installed if you click check for updates, but seekers who do click that button will be getting a patch that's already gone through a round of testing with people who know what they're getting into. Windows insiders are, of course, people who have chosen to be beta testers. Microsoft first pushed a test version of a cumulative update to the release preview ring back in November 2018, but this time Microsoft put two builds through the testing site using insiders to actually find problems before the stable release. That's just a month after the release of the initial release of the disastrous October 2018 update, which deleted some people's files. Microsoft was so confident in this big update that the company didn't even bother putting it through the release preview testing before unleashing it on those unfortunate seekers who clicked check for updates. Now, Microsoft has been chastened, and it's putting... It's even putting smaller patches through real testing before rolling them out. And that's progress. We just wish Microsoft would stop its shenanigans with the check for updates button. That button should never opt users into additional, less tested patches without warning. But at least those patches are getting more testing first. I'm in the industry, and I had no idea. That is so sneaky. So if I push check for updates, they're assuming, oh, well, Robbie wants to try some new updates that we've been experimenting with. How did they just make that assumption? That's like a flying leap of... That's idiocy. I I read that story, and I'll tell you my feelings for Microsoft. Well, 
<laughs> they stayed the same, really. Well, yeah. And, and okay, at least, at least, as you say, they're going to put them through testing now. Right. So that means hopefully the October update will never happen again because that was horrible for a lot of users. Right. But to think, okay, so keep this in mind. If you click on that check for updates, you're actually opting into receiving beta patches. Yeah. Stuff that hasn't necessarily been marked as stable. That's kind of worrisome. Yeah, it scares me, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Um, let's jump into uh, CoinGecko report. Yes. Um, this is uh, what the crypto market looked like as of 1,800 hours Eastern time on Wednesday, the 23rd of January, 2019. Now, Bitcoin uh, lost about $56.46 US. It's at uh, $3,532.41. Litecoin looks like the only one that's gone up just a little bit. Only 33 cents US, uh, but hit $31.48. Ethereum went down a little bit as well, uh, $115.46. Monero uh, also lost a bit at $44.53. Now, Stellite and TurtleCoin, the little guys, are chugging along behind and also losing a little bit of uh, ground there. Stellite now at 2.12 ten thousandths of a cent and TurtleCoin at 1.33 ten thousandths of a cent, both losing uh, just a little bit. Um, Do not forget that the cryptocurrency market is always running. It's always changing. It's volatile. And if you're going to get in on it, you need to be ready for that and be careful. Just remember that. Big thanks to Roy W. Nash and our community of viewers for submitting stories to us this week. Thanks for watching the Category 5.TV newsroom. Don't forget to like and subscribe for all your tech news with a slight Linux bias. And for more free content, be sure to check out our website from the Category 5.TV newsroom. I'm Sasha Rickman. And I'm Robbie Ferguson. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for being here with us this week. It was a lot of fun. Don't forget, go grab this book, cat5.tv slash, uh, what did I put it at? AI. Cat5.tv slash AI. Pick up a copy today, and uh, you're going to enjoy that. I promise you that. Uh, Thank you to our guest, Martin Ford, for joining us on the show. Thanks for Jeff being here as well. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And thank you for being here. We'll see you again next week, and you don't want to miss it. Can I tell them what we're going to be talking about next week? Yes. Oh, boy. Wukash is going to be here from Pine64. I love their single board computers. I love the Pine book. And, um, well, we're going to be talking with him about what is up and coming from Pine64 in 2019. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint. Okay. We're going to be talking about some stuff that has never been talked about before. We're going to be unveiling some technology from Pine64 that you've never heard of before because... It's never been said. So you don't want to miss out if you're interested in Pine64, in single board computers, in all of the cool SOC tech that is coming out in 2019. You don't want to miss next week's episode. Next week's episode, I will see you there. I'll be here. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you.